Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, July 7th, 2019, we continue our series titled Genesis in the Beginning. Today's sermon, The Fall, will be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of Genesis chapter 3. Enjoy. I think today what you're going to see is less a message about um, all of us as lowly sinners, although we are, we're going to see a message of hope and the gospel. Because this is, in fact, the text where the gospel is first actually presented and given to us. And the hope that is set before us, where a God who did not show his complete and total judgment, but showed restraint and, in fact, gave us grace. I hope that we see that in this message today. I'm reminded, of course, within this freedom of the will that uh, Jonathan Edwards in the 1740s wrote a book called Freedom of the Will. And in it, he, dis- he defined our freedom of will as those who make choices based upon their inclination or their disposition at any one particular moment. When he says inclination, he's talking about that natural thing that just comes most natural to you and how you're inclined to respond to different things, different opportunities. Or a disposition, right, is talking about our attitude or how we are, right? We've all woken up with those bad hair days, although I can say I have never woken up with a bad hair day. But we start to understand that this is in fact how we go about making our choices in life. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, <coughs> I was, I won't give any names here, but um, I was driving and my wife was in the car. So we're at a stoplight at Pinnacle Peak and Scottsdale Road, and we're going to make a left to head towards Desert Ridge coming up Scottsdale Road. And we're in the turn lane, right? And there's a green arrow for the turn lane. And I'm in the second car position. There's a car in front of us and there's a car and many cars behind us. Of course, the light turns green arrow, which of course means go. And the guy in front of us doesn't even budge. Nothing. I mean, it doesn't take but a split second for my wife in the passenger seat, no names, just my wife. (laughs) My wife to say, you need to lay on the horn. That's what it's there for. And I'm immediately going to the, babe, I don't don't know what's going on in this guy's life. I mean, maybe his uh, friend just died or something. And maybe, maybe I don't want to, you know, I don't want to upset him. At this time, the guy behind me has now seen it as his opportunity to chime in. So he's got the horn. He's obviously yelling things. I can see him in the rearview mirror. They're not good things. And he's yelling. And I'm sitting there getting a smile about my face. My wife's like, you need to hug the horn. And all this is going on at this time. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my God, this is Genesis 3. (laughs) The guy in front of us is the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The guy behind me is the serpent. (laughs) And then the woman that God gave me It's saying, lay on the horn. I don't honk the horn. I grew up in Los Angeles, and I'm definitely not going to honk a horn there. And I'm certainly not going to lonk into a horn honk when everyone here is armed. 
You see, what's happening in this whole moment is both of us are acting upon our desire. And in that desire that's coming out of us is in fact this simple thing. My wife is schedulely righteous. We're 15 minutes early to everything. And you sit there and you say that, oh, but what about you, Jeff? No, no, Jeff is willfully disobeying over here in his smug, self-centered, self-righteous position. I don't lay on the horn. The garden is being repeated, just like it is all the time. Choices are put in front of us continually. We know the difference between right and wrong, but oftentimes we act upon the desire within ourselves in autonomy apart from God. The moment was not a moment for legalism, nor was it a moment of license to do anything I want. It was a time for gospel, to recognize the creator of the heavens and the earth set before us just like he did in Genesis 3. And he reveals to us all types of sin. You know when, when, when Hebrews tells us that Christ died once and for all, he's not talking about all humanity without exclusion. He's talking about all types of sin. All types of sin. Sins of ignorance and sins of willful disobedience. Point number one. The sins of ignorance and willful disobedience. Genesis 3, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Half-truths. Half-truths make whole lies. The serpent is in his, in his craftiness is positioning something where God, in fact, told them that they could eat from all of the trees in the garden. But from this one particular tree, don't eat from it. You see, we are always going to be infiltrated by persecution, attempts to pull us away from our relationship with God. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus himself warned the 12. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Be crafty and understand where the deceptions lie. Every day for us as sheep in God's flock is a day amongst wolves desiring you. You think of that great moment when God confronted Satan about Job. Where have you been? What a great question. It's not that he doesn't know the answer. We'll see other rhetorical questions here in Genesis 3. But where have you been? He says, I've been searching the world over for souls to devour. And then those frightful words, have you considered my good and faithful servant, Job? Frightening words coming from our God. Or maybe it's where Paul warned of false prophets in 2 Corinthians 11.3. He says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. See, just like Eve, you know, if you eat of this, you will be more like Christ. 
Who doesn't want to be more like Christ? You see, when the commandment of God tells you, don't eat of this fruit, then the answer is easy. Don't eat of that fruit. But when the serpent in his craftiness tells you, but if you eat of this, you'll be more like God, you can become deceived into believing it to be true. And the truth is a lie. And the lie attacks your ignorance of his word. In three, two through five, God's integrity is at question. It says, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And this conversation is going between the woman and the serpent. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, the craftiness. And this, the deception that you will not surely die. No, they wouldn't die immediately, but spiritually they did. The relationship and the separation from God that took place as a result of the sin was death spiritually, darkening the soul. Paul will refer to it later in Romans 1 as being handed over to a depraved or a debased mind for the pursuit of your own desires. You see, desirous autonomy is in fact the key sin for all of us. None of us can in fact violate commandments two through 10 without first violating commandment number one, thou shalt not have any other God but the one true God. It's in his word, it's in him that we trust. God said it plainly in 2.17 when he says, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, spiritually. Physically, as I spoke a couple weeks ago, I talked about the dust man. That God created humanity by breathing into the nostrils of that which he formed out of the dust into Adam. And from the rib or the side of Adam, he created the woman. But we are in fact dust, always intentionally designed to not live an immortal physical life. We're gonna get to why we were never created to be immortal in our physical being. But our spiritual being, our soul, this dichotomy of body and soul are abundantly clear. Genesis 3, 13, this half-truth that became a whole lie is then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The question is, is who are you listening to? In John 8, 44, you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, his own inclination. For he is a liar and the father of all lies. You see, when they ate from that fruit, they believed the lie of the serpent. 
and the serpent became our father. He became the one that we're following. And when we were exiled from the garden, God drove us out of the garden, he separated us from the tree of life. The tree of life was this thing that would sustain the physical man. We'll see that again. James, of course, tells it this way. In James 1.14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. <clears throat> and of course, from sin comes death. You see, desire is in fact the enticement of sin. In 3.6 it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That language there means off her shoulder. He wasn't far away. And he ate. You see, the woman was deceived into believing that she would become more like God, and she wasn't wrong. The serpent didn't lie about that. 1 Timothy 2.14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Eve was ignorant in her approach to the word of God, but Adam was a man of license. He knew it was wrong, but he did it anyway. Eve was trying to legally get herself into a better position with God. So many of us do this, where we have our checklists of Christianity, did Bible study, check, memorized scripture, check, had quiet time, check, thinking that this will improve our status and our stature with God, when in fact there is nothing that can improve your status and stature with God. If God has set his affection upon you at the very foundation of the world, then there is nothing that can separate you from this love of this God. Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate the first steps of the dismantling of the family. Adam not taking personal responsibility for his lack of headship, his lack of federal headship of the household. The one that God had entrusted him, that he had empowered him with. To name the animals, to name the trees, to name everything. In fact, he won't even get to naming Eve, Eve until after the fall. In Genesis 3.17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The question that should leave us with is how well do you know God's word, his truth? Can we even be in a position to question his word? Do we not trust that God is a God of his word? How much of our life is spent trying to control the sovereign will of God rather than just simply submitting ourselves to following the commanded will of God? Proverbs 1.7 tells us, of course, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and fools despise discipline. It requires a discipline of us to look at the circumstances, to stand at the crossroad and look and ask and walk in the truth, to understand the word of God and to not be deceived by the person who's using it as a half truth to convince you of a whole lie. It leads us to our second point. After the fall, what are the consequences of sin? The consequences of sin. In verse seven, it says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. It's interesting, and I know that Pastor Ed will be talking about Cain and Abel coming up here, but it's like, like Cain's offering of vegetables. There's no blood sacrifice. The coverings are worthless. The offerings are worthless. Genesis 3.5 tells us, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil as the serpent told us. That part's true. Just like your iPhone. Your iPhone's not sin in itself, but it does possess both good and evil. It's your desire that will determine whether you're going to exercise evil or whether you're going to exercise good. There can be no freedom of the will unless there is a prohibition, unless we are forbidden from something. Otherwise, it would be anarchy and chaos and you could do as you please. Genesis 2, 5, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, at the beginning of creation, they were naked and not ashamed. They were likened to my grandson, poolside. He's naked and he's not ashamed. And the reason why he's not ashamed is because he does not have any knowledge of good or evil. We start to realize that the consequences continue. It gets broken into 8 through 13. We start to see these great questions. I'm going to leave these questions for the end to bring them all back together. But it says in verse eight, it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? It's not that God doesn't know where he is. It's a rhetorical question. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Another great question. The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. You see, God, God knows every question. He's not asking the question because he didn't know where they were hiding. This wasn't the first hide-and-seek game. But in fact, he knows. We know in part by Psalm 139. I'll let you read all of it at a later time. But part of it says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together, for darkness is as light with you. He knows it all. He sees it all. Jonah made a valiant effort to get away from the presence of God. He found that God can talk to him in the belly of a whale. God is everywhere. He's omni-everything. We think that we can hide stuff deep within our heart. Job 31, 33 says, I have concealed my transgressions and as others do by hiding my iniquity in my heart. As long as I don't tell you, then nobody knows. God knows. Or Genesis 3, 4. We sometimes believe the lie, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Trust me, if God tells you if you do this, you will die. You will die. He is a God of his word. Or 1 Timothy 2, 14. Willful versus deception. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. We see this as legalism and license. Adam exercising license. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he did it anyway. Eve was trying desperately to formulate what did God actually say. But ultimately her motivation, her desire was that she wanted to be more like God. And so it sounded like a good explanation from the serpent. When there's a snake talking to you, back away. But we see the Lord's judgment upon the serpent in 14 when it says the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust, there it is, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What was it that Satan said to God? Where have you been? I've been searching the world over for souls to devour. Dust. The thing that Satan wants to consume is you and me. He craves the dust. From dust we came and dust we will return. We see that humanity is like the serpent. In Micah 7, 17, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They, it's talking about people, shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. But we have a hope. Isaiah 7:14 Therefore the Lord the Lord himself will give you a sign behold the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel You see for all of us that conceive and have children we conceive our children in sin 
Because the imputation of the sin is transferred between the man and the woman. The enmity that exists between the serpent and the woman. And the woman will give birth to the one that will crush the head of the serpent, but it will bruise his heel. The hope of the gospel is found in Genesis 3.15. The promise of the Messiah that is to come will come from the woman. It's why he gave her the name Eve, life bearer. That this is where it will come from. And the beauty of this, of this virgin conception is that we conceive our children outside of the presence of God. Whereas Jesus himself was conceived in the presence of God because it is the Holy Spirit that conceived with the woman. And the God-man was born to become the one that would crush his head. Galatians 4, 4 tells us, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Hebrews 2, 14, Jesus becomes tempted and tested in all ways. He says, since therefore the children share in, the, in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. There's no wonder that it all began in a garden and that the final temptation and test of Jesus took place in a garden. The offer of Satan, if you will kneel before me, if you will bow before me, I will give you everything. And Jesus stood firm in the truth of God's word. There's great hope that we have in Revelation 20, verse 10, for we know the final destination of the devil. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Lord's judgment on the woman. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I've been reading this for three weeks and it doesn't get any easier. What he did as a consequence to the woman is he put the dumb one in charge. The one who willfully disobeys. Have you ever wondered, I have four kids and I've often questioned, why is it that my wife kept going back for another kid? The pain is so severe. To watch a woman give birth is incredible. I found it in this study, John 16, 21. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. You realize that God has empowered each of us that have children the ability to create a soul. And it is that soul that the serpent desires. And it is your job to protect that soul with the word of God's truth. But it is God's job to save and redeem. You see, we as a people, we understand the simplicity and the truth that Jesus Christ did not come into this world to condemn, but to save it. 
But yet, no sooner do we read that, we think that it must be, in fact, our responsibility to condemn. He did not come to be served, but to serve. We start to understand that our job is neither to condemn, but it is to serve. And it is the desires of our heart that keeps us from serving. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Serve her. Wives, respect your husbands by serving them. First Corinthians eleven three says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. This is the promises given within God's word. Not so you can stand there and say, yeah, but Lord, but the woman you gave me. But for you as men to stand up and be a man. I sinned. I did that. I'm responsible for that. Personal responsibility. The Lord's judgment upon the man, 17 through 19. The Lord's judgment on the man and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You see the struggle is real. I don't know if you've noticed out there but it's not easy. Ecclesiastes 2, and 23 says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart, which he toils beneath the sun? For all of his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. Or Psalm 103, 14, talking about God and what he knows of us and that he doesn't give us too much, but he puts just the right amount of pressure on us, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are but dust. But God's justice is without partiality. All flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. The fact of it is, is one out of every one dies. I don't know why God puts us through such difficult times. In the last three weeks, in the last week or so, a young man that we raised in our last church that we, that we knew so well and loved his parents, this boy who we laid hands on and we commissioned to be in the mission field. He loved flying planes and he was flying pastors from, from all here to there in the deepest parts of the jungle of Guatemala. His plane went down this last week and he went home to be with the Lord. I don't know why. I'm not here to question God. God, why would you take a 20-year, eight-year-old man who loves Christ with all of his heart, leave his wife and their three daughters and the one daughter who's still in the womb on the way without a father? 
All I know is that he works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I can only draw upon his word and trust in the sovereignty of God. I don't know why God gives us wayward children. I don't know why God, in fact, tests us day and night. But I can tell you what the outcome he desires the most is he wants to say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. The test that he put before Adam and Eve is the test that is before you and me every single day. And the hope that we find in Ecclesiastes 12, 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Here today, if you don't have a faith in the person of Jesus Christ, your moment face to face with Jesus is not going to be a good experience. Give your life to Christ. Follow the person of Jesus Christ. Put your hope and your faith in the truth of his word. Surrender your desires. Die to yourself and live for him. This is what he's given us in the beloved hope of the one that is to come and to crush the serpent's head. This is what he's trying to get across to us in Genesis chapter 3. My point three is this. God's premeditated plan to the fall was grace, not judgment. Judgment has yet come. Don't think that judgment's not coming. Judgment has not yet come. Consequences were death, physical death, spiritual death. The beauty of God is that he didn't allow us to enter back into the garden to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Because he knew that if we ate of the tree of life, the moment we ate it, we would be physically immortal and spiritually dead for all eternity. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. He made the first sacrifice. He sacrificed two innocent animals and he made from them skins that would cover the sins of themselves. And then he drove them out of the garden in 322 through 24, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand. That word lest there means so as not to be. Now, so as not to be, reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out and east, and he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every, turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This was an act of his grace. For God wanted to continue a relationship with his creation. He created a plan to reach us. When it says in 22, the Lord said, it means God speaking within the Godhead. Just like in 126. 
when it says the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. You see, our divine privilege of knowledge was gained through disobedience. But we don't sin all the more so that grace can abound. Romans 8, 20 through 22, it says, for the creation, that's Adam and Eve, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. In 23, he says, God sent them out of the garden. They're sent out of the garden, not out of judgment, but out of grace. It's not an act of desperation with God hurriedly trying to get the man and the woman out of the garden lest they somehow get to the tree that give them some sort of mystical, magical powers that God's not in control of. It was an act of his grace. It says emphatically in verse 24, he drove them out. This is the same word that's used in Exodus 6.1 regarding Pharaoh drove the Israelites out of Egypt. He didn't just say, okay, go. He said, go, let's get it, come on, move it, let's go. He mushed them out of the garden. Let's go, come on. Lest they reach back. He placed cherubim, his angels, protecting the entrance of the garden so that they couldn't get back in because the desire would be to live eternally. But they would be living eternally separated from a holy God without a relationship with him, for God can't walk hand in hand with sin. So these bodies, these shells that we sit in here today with will never enter into the kingdom of God. Some of you should probably say hallelujah. What you will be given is your soul will enter into the kingdom of God and your soul will, at the second coming of Christ, will be issued a glorified body, not of perishable means, but of imperishable means, where you will reside with him for all eternity, reconciled because of what the Son has done on our behalf in his crushing of the serpent, his conquering, his victory over death. He drove them out, protecting the entrance but those divine questions, those rhetorical questions, we need to understand what does God sound like? Because it says, I heard, I heard. It means voice, it means to hear God, not the crackling of leaves under his feet, but his voice is what they were talking about. In Genesis 3, 8 it says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. God's walking and talking. Genesis 3.10, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. The sound of you is his voice. Because the word there is Shema, and it means to hear or to listen to or to obey. God is talking, obey. God is speaking to you today, obey. You've been given a twofold responsibility in your garden to cultivate it and keep it, to worship and obey. Sin is what will keep you from him. The rhetorical questions, where are you? This is sin keeping you from his presence. 
It's a vertical relationship. When he says, who told you that you were naked? This is sin keeping you from his plan. When he says, have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Know that sin keeps you from his word. What have you done? Sin keeps you from his blessings. It creates a division in the family, not only with God our Father, but with one another. Because we instantly blame, downplay, we minimize our sin. The woman you gave me, I blame both God and the woman. You see, God's grace is what draws us to him. You see, grace doesn't judge as much as our sin deserves. He should have wiped us off the earth that day. That would have been justice. God's grace takes the initiative to restore us and to find us. God's grace covers our sin with sacrifice. Grace protects us from the folly of our own decisions For if we ate from the tree of life after our sin, we would have forever been alive physically, but dead forever spiritually. His grace showed us a plan to be reconciled. Grace has provided its ultimate cure. To believe in the Messiah that is to come, or in our case, to believe in the Messiah that has come. You see, the answer was in Genesis 3.15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. John MacArthur said in one of his commentaries, God has not left man alone to wallow and suffer without hope. He introduced a promise to restore creation and defeat the evil power behind the serpent, which is, by the way, our desires a plan that ultimately culminates in Jesus Christ and will be fulfilled in his first and second comings. That's when justice will come. Because when Jesus comes back, he's coming with the great white throne judgment. And if your faith is not in him, if your desires are of autonomy and to pursue being like God, then you will be standing on the wrong side of the great white throne. I beg of you today, if you're lost like this, come and join those who will be standing on the other side of that throne, behind Jesus as a co-heir with him. Also, God brings undeserved common goodness to mankind. He tells us that in Matthew 5.45. He restrains evil, 2 Thessalonians 2.7. And he instituted the conscience to restrict sinners' freedom in Romans 2.14 and 15. And in human government to condone, and, uh, condone good and to punish evildoers if it will do its job. Romans 13, 1 through 7. God himself also experienced the effects of a fallen world when Jesus became a man of sorrows. We were told of this in Isaiah 53, 3. A man of sorrows who lived, who suffered, who died on a cross as the bearer of divine wrath. He substituted himself for you and me, and he conquered death by crushing the head of the serpent. It bruised his heel, 
but place your faith in the person of Jesus Christ and live with him forever, by him forever. It is in Christ alone that we should live our lives. Not our desire, but his desire. Not our will, but his will. And as we go through the struggles of life, the difficulties that are thrown at us, they are merely but trials to be considered as pure joy. For he is refining you and conforming you into the image of himself to live in all eternity with him. And this, Genesis 3, is an introduction of the new Jerusalem that is to come where we will live in perfect harmony with him for all eternity. Let me pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we worship and adore you. We come to you now as your humble servants, asking that we could serve you and serve one another. Asking, Lord, that you would help us with our desires to be tested against your word. That, Lord, we would obey and follow you. But, Lord, that we would know that when we don't, you have covered that sin. Help us not to strive out of legalism or license, but to surrender as gospel, to die to oneself, and to rejoice over the things that you're doing and the things that you have done. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.